Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is August 16th. It is a Sunday. It is week five of this 2020 fantasy baseball season, at least in terms of free agent pickups. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It's a big week with lots of players to bid on, especially on the hitting side. So we're going to break them down. We'll take some questions. We'll talk about the few pitchers that are available and how you might want to handle that situation as well. Beller, how's it going for you on this Sunday? It is going good. A little tired, but feeling good. Feeling happy to be talking baseball, having a, a nice weekend here, and just ready to get into what should be, I think, a pretty active week on the hitter side, as you said. Yeah, and obviously there were a couple of big prospects that have come up. Dylan Carlson, only available really in a small handful of leagues. I think we talked about him briefly with Dalton Daldon on Friday. If he's available, mm-hmm. he's the best player available. Pick him up everywhere. I don't think we have to go deep down the what can Dylan Carlson do for you path because he can do everything. I mean, he's got a, a chance to be a five-category player uh, right away. Alec Bohm, of course, was the other big name called up at the end of the week. He was called up on Thursday. He started each of the first three games since getting called up. Dropped in the order to eighth for those uh, second two appearances. I have not seen the Phillies lineup for Sunday just yet, but I would imagine he's kind of stuck in the bottom third of the order temporarily. But the thing he continues to do in this very limited run is something he was doing throughout his time in the minor leagues. He's hitting the ball very hard. The hard hit rate, batted balls above 95 miles per hour, uh, is very high. Even the outs he's hitting are scorched. And the thing that makes Bohm particularly interesting, Beller, is that he doesn't strike out a lot. Like Most guys that hit the ball that hard, they bring a 25 or 30% K rate. Bohm might bring a sub-20% K rate as a rookie and eventually settle in as a guy who strikes out 12 or 15% of the time at his peak, which to me kind of is an Anthony Rizzo sort of profile as a corner infielder. And we know how good Rizzo's been throughout his career. He's kind of peaked as a late first rounder and still is a pretty consistent early round guy. You factor in the park, factor in for now that he's a third baseman that adds a little extra value as well. How willing are you to go kind of all in and throw the major bid, 30 40% maybe in some cases where you're desperate for a bat? Are you, you going top of the scale to get him? Yeah, yeah, I definitely am. I, I wouldn't let the bottom third of the order thing temper my enthusiasm for going after him. Obviously, it's not what you want, but uh, it, it shouldn't be steering you away from him in any really serious way. Uh, he's sort of on that Carlson page. I mean, he's one of the best hitters who's going to be available. There's a good chance that he's gonna he will be one of the five best hitters who's available as a waiver pickup all season. Um, so I think that this is someone who you pretty much empty the fab for. Again, we've said this before, so maybe you're sick of hearing it. Maybe you've got your head around it already. But just because it is literally early in what this season is, it's not actually early in what the season is going to be the rest of the way. So uh, like, I feel like no one would be uh, you know, tapping around the idea of of throwing a huge bid on Alec Bohm if it were a normal season and we were in the middle of August. It just feels as though maybe you should be holding your money back for something in this particular season, but I would be willing to bet right now, DVR, that he is one of the three or five best hitters who's available at any point on waivers this season, so I do think that he is someone who you want to empty it out for. I think if you're talking about like an eight or a ten-team league, something a little smaller, the... Yeah, sure level's a little lower, right? You don't have to go as aggressive because the threshold for what it takes to be a viable hitter, especially at the corners in leagues that small, is a bit different. But for 12s, for 15s, for keeper in Dynasty League, he's long gone. He's been owned for a while now. Uh, But really, just an amazing bat who should be able to make an impact here. And I think there is a case for him to move up in the order if he hits the Mm -hmm, way we expect him to hit. There have been some surprises, though, on the prospect front. In the last couple of days, uh, even since I started writing the ads and drops column, Luis Garcia, a very young middle infielder in the Nationals organization, he got the call on Friday. We learned that Starlin Castro had suffered a broken wrist. That's probably going to be at least a four-week injury for Castro. So this is a prolonged opportunity for Garcia. I think he's interesting because it's a good lineup, and he's been young for the level everywhere he's played. So you have this ability to you know see Luis Garcia getting a lot better very quickly. Even mm-hmm. though the numbers last year at AA were not overwhelming at all, really. A 257 average, 280 OBP, 337 slug. And ordinarily, people would just ignore a player like this. He did that as a 19-year-old. He does have some speed, has developing power. What's the cutoff, though, for the type of league in which you're interested for Garcia? A guy who's you know, prospect 
ranking is not necessarily in step with his fantasy viability, especially in the short term. Yeah, I mean, it has to be a 15-teamer, and it has to be with the knowledge that you are buying opportunity, that you're buying upside, because even in the regular deep 15-teamers that we play in, five outfielder, utility, corner infield, middle infield, uh, even in a league like that, he still doesn't have the numbers to justify a pickup, right? So you have to be buying the the, the thought, the opportunity that he's going to be able to develop into something on the fly in the majors. I'm not really all that excited about him from a fantasy perspective, a real-life perspective. I love what the Nationals are doing. I love that they're taking this opportunity created by the Castro injury to get Garcia up, to get him out, to get him in the lineup, to get him some regular opportunity to use 2020 as like a proving ground for a real season in 2021. I love that they're taking this approach. I just don't think the fantasy viability is here beyond, you know, like pixie dust and hoping that things go right for him in this next month or so. Yeah, I mean, it, what it could be is it could be a profile where he hits like 270 and continues to struggle to get on base, doesn't bring mm-hmm. much power to the table, and steals the occasional base. And that's kind of like a, a low-end, middle-infield filler, right. even though he's young, even though he's going to get better, even though the future is very bright. So I think you do have to be careful. And I think it's interesting because it's the complete... Like opposite, really, of Bohm as a prospect who might be lower on non-fantasy prospect list than he should mm-hmm. be based on the fact that most of what he brings to the table is that offensive ability. It's, it's a hit tool with power, and some other tools might lag a little bit behind where he's at offensively. So just kind of a good reminder. Make sure you're looking at a fantasy-centric list or at least considering how a player appears as high on the list as he does, because sometimes it's defense, sometimes it's age-level production, sometimes it's the projection of hit tool that's still Mm -hmm. developing, and I think a lot of those things do hold true for Luis Garcia. Uh, Jumping back to another prospect call-up, though, Luis Diaz, he gets the call in Miami, and this is another guy that's not necessarily a highly regarded prospect, but he does everything we want as fantasy players. I saw an interesting note this is on the CBS News uh, player page for Lewin Diaz. So it was a Rotowire update that was written late last season. The reason that the Marlins traded for him, they sent Sergio Romo to the Twins, they got Lewin Diaz back as the return, is that he was one of the only minor leaguers they found who had a hard hit rate above, I think it was 45%, and a strikeout rate under 20%. So they're looking for a guy that hits the ball a lot and hits it hard when he connects and he ticks both of those boxes. So he's a first base prospect that alone would ordinarily bring him down on prospect mm-hmm. lists. Most analysts, I don't think had him in their top 100, but he's hitting cleanup in his debut. This is a left-handed hitting first base, but he actually fields his position pretty well. He's playing first base on Sunday. Jesus Aguilar is playing DH just to give everybody an idea. And he's hitting cleanup in his first game. <laughs> uh, we saw him debut, I think off the bench on Saturday, uh, one batted ball, it was a single, it was hard hit, hit it at 97. I know we're looking at very granular things here when we're talking about one guy stepping into the plate one time, but this is a Marlins team that's been just obviously wiped out by the COVID-19 virus. They've had a bunch of key players missing, and there's an opportunity here, and I think the fact that he's hitting cleanup says a lot about just how much the Marlins trust them, even though some of the guys they're rolling out there in the bottom half of the lineup are guys who might not even be on the roster two or three weeks from now. Yeah, that's true, and I think you do have to think about that. But also, you, you just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't dump him right into the leadoff or the the cleanup spot, excuse me, if you didn't think that this was someone who is going to, I think, contribute to your team for the rest of the season. So I like this ad. I think uh, I think when we're talking about guys along these lines, guys who. You know, for everything that we've seen about them, for all the stats that we can read, we really don't know what's going to happen to them, especially in their first, I mean, how many how many uh, plate appearances are they really going to get the rest of the season, right? So we can't say for sure what is going to happen to them, but I think we can take it on spec pretty strongly here uh, that he is going to get an opportunity to play every day or mostly every day. And given the profile, that should be enough to make him uh, someone who most fantasy owners want to go after. Everyone's not going to be in a position to be able to go after him. But you mentioned the numbers. I didn't know that uh, about the Twins, uh, the factor that they made the trade to get him because of the fact that he hit the ball so hard and 
struck out so little. So that right there is interesting enough in itself. And if you do look at the numbers, uh, they bear that out. We're talking about a guy who in uh, 33 games uh, first before the trade, uh, when he was still in the Minnesota organization at the AA level, slugged four, uh, 587 after the trade, didn't do quite as well, but still f- slugged 461 despite hitting just 200. So that gives you an idea of what the power can be for Lewin Diaz uh, in a long-term situation. I'd like to set. I, I just think it's it's an interesting player. It's a guy who's going to get an opportunity to play uh, mostly every day, and that in itself makes him someone who I think should be targeted. Probably still in 15-team leagues, I think we're talking here, but definitely someone who should be on list if you play in a league like that. Yeah, absolutely in the mix for 15-teamers. I could see maybe taking the flyer in a 12-team scenario as well. Taking a look at their schedule real quick for the upcoming week. The Marlins do have a doubleheader next weekend against the Nationals, so eight games on the schedule this week. Uh, They will see three lefties if the schedule holds up, and one of them is Patrick Corbin, so that's pretty tough. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about at least five games probably for Diaz this week, which is not bad. I think he's probably going to be comparable to like an Eric Thames-type fantasy player where maybe it's a little bit of a low average initially, pretty good OBP. I think you're going to get more batting average in the long run. And then that big power right away. So if Eric Thames is viable in your league, I would say Lewin Diaz is at least worth a, a small bid, if not kind of like a 5 to 7% range one, since he can do some damage. And again, that low K percentage paired with that hard hit rate, that's exactly what we're looking for in high ceiling sort of players who don't necessarily mm-hmm. cost that much. I want to talk about Dalton Varsho again, because I always want to talk about Dalton Varsho. Uh, He's not the only interesting catcher to think about bidding on this week, though, because there was an injury in Los Angeles, and Kiebert Ruiz is up for the Dodgers now. But I think Varsho's opportunity might be be coming up here. I think we've seen him start back-to-back games now this weekend. We've talked about him before. He moves around. He has power. He has speed. He controls the strike zone really well. And this is an Arizona team that's been a below-average offense so far. It kind of seems like they're getting to this point where Jake Lamb being at least locked into the large side of the platoon role with DH at bats, that might be over, and they're able to move some guys around to accommodate Varsho as his replacement. Yeah, you got to like that fact about it, that we're not talking about just a versatile player, but we're talking about a versatile team in terms of having multiple guys who can play different spots, and that's going to help accommodate what Varsho uh, brings to the table offensively and defensively. So I agree with you. I think that when you get a guy this young, excuse me, this sort of playing time, uh, it's a signal that he is going to be someone who is at least a semi-regular and probably having the opportunity to become a little bit more than that. So again, this uh, these are all guys that we're taking on minor league production and a little bit of just betting on the opportunity, but that's totally fine. I think there's no reason that like you don't need to justify it beyond that so long as you go into it knowing that that's what you're doing, and that's what you are doing with uh, Dalton Varsho here. I do think he's going to be ending up playing a little bit more. And even though this Arizona offense uh, has struggled for the most part of the season, they did start to wake up a little bit uh, this week. It's still an offense that I think when you just look at the parts and you look at the bats that are in it, it should be a good offense. It should be an offense that's at least above league average. And I think sooner rather than later, they're going to start to click things here. And again, it's a, it feels a little bit more urgent than I think it actually is. Um, Saad F. Sharma made this point on our Cubs podcast earlier this week that because of where things are in this season, you have to evaluate it differently. But 16 baseball games is still 16 baseball games, no matter if we're talking about a 60-game season or a 162-game season. It's still 16 baseball games. And I don't think we would have this urgency about Arizona if this were a normal season. We would say, hey, they're starting off slow, but we would have no doubt that the offense as a whole was going to get things right. And I still feel that way about this team. So I want a line of investment in it. And you're not just going to go out and be like, all right, I want a line of investment in Arizona. I'll take Cattell Marte. Thank you very much. This is a way you can actually find a realistic line of investment in an offense that I think has much, much brighter days ahead. And I like with the world that Varsho can play in it. So, yes, I am in on Varsho. He's one of the guys who I am more excited about that we've discussed here, uh, obviously not including Bowman Carlson, even if there isn't quite as much individual reason to be excited about him because I do think he's going to be in a fertile run-scoring and run-producing environment eventually if he's playing mostly every day for the Diamondbacks. Yeah, two-catcher leagues, especially Dalton Varsho, worth the stash <laughs> now. I think you can still add him somewhat cheaply. The numbers aren't going to jump off the page. He's not going to show up real high 
unsortable free agent leaderboards for this week right. either. But uh, if he starts getting to that power, if he starts running, people are going to notice real quick, and he's going to be a better option than pretty much any second catcher that you're probably starting in most situations. The other guy that I would think about at the position, at least as a temporary addition, is Kiebert Ruiz. And I think part of the reason I would do this, Beller, is like I'm not convinced that Austin Barnes can be more than a part-time catcher anyway. Uh, we were excited about him a couple years ago because he flashed some pretty interesting OBP skills, and he just hasn't maintained that. I mean, you go back to that 2017 season, hit 289, hit a 408 OBP, slugged 486. It's a clear outlier. The last three years have brought nothing close to that level of production from Austin Barnes. So Will Smith's on the IL. He's got a neck injury. I think they called it neck inflammation. He's not played very well to begin the season anyway. And Ruiz is one of those guys that is all hit tool, really. Still kind of developing some power. I think he hit 12 homers as a 19-year-old, though, at double A in 2018. So there's an up arrow here for sure. Now, I think the question is, how much will they trust him right now in his first run in the big leagues? To me... I'm kind of taking this default position. If a team calls up a prospect and they're not going to wait until next year, hold them down for a couple of weeks, then bring them up, like they're already on the roster. They must trust these guys enough mm-hmm. to play them in at least a part-time role, if not more. Yeah, I'm totally taking that default position as well. Obviously, if they trusted Austin Barnes to be their go-to catcher while Will Smith is out and they just needed a backup, they wouldn't be calling up Ruiz. They just, it just doesn't make sense. You don't call up a guy who's this young to just be someone who plays you know once a week. They're just not going to do that. So I agree with you there. This just feels like his prospect status is all projection, like you said. I mean, we're talking about a guy who is young, who's a catcher. That's always going to give you a little bit of a boost. A guy who seems like he can stick at catcher, so that's going to give you a boost in prospect rankings. And while we're always going to get excited about a top 100 prospect catcher coming up and joining his major league ball club, it just feels like this is all projection. Uh, last year, across AA and AAA, hit 261, 331, 347. Did actually uh, have a decent run at AAA in just nine games there, but still. I, I believe that Keeper Rees can, can be a guy in the future. I just don't really see it happening this year. Much more of a real-life than fantasy impact for me. It's crazy. Look at what he's done. Prior to 2019, he was at least the league average hitter in terms of WRC plus at every stop. I think he kind of peaked as a like a 127 WRC plus guy at low A in the Midwest League. Again, as a young teenager, uh, kind of flirting with being very average in the last year or so, but doing that with a sub 10% K rate. Keeper yeah. Ruiz has had K rates of 8% or lower uh, since 2018, splitting time between AA and AAA. So a fun player if he does get an opportunity, but probably still limited to two catcher formats and certainly doesn't have the the power or the speed. He's a 20-grade runner, uh, doesn't have the same tools that Varsho brings to the table, even if his opportunity in the short term might be elevated with that Will Smith injury. Uh, let's talk about Clint Frazier for a moment. He homered again on Saturday, taking advantage of injuries to John Carlos Stanton and Aaron Judge this week. I don't have any doubts about the bat, Beller. I, I think he's shown some concerns with this defense for sure those were well documented a year ago and on most other teams this guy would probably play left field every day and hit in the middle third of the order so this opportunity is probably temporary you know once judge and stanton come back and both of their injuries are grade one muscle strains Uh, with judge it's not a setback with the rib problem it's his calf with stanton i think it's a hamstring they're probably back in about two weeks that's usually what a grade one strain takes in terms of recovery time how much do you bid on a guy like Frazier knowing that for these next two weeks, you're going to get a player that's probably just as good, if not better, than all the bats we've talked about on the show so far? Like he's His long-term opportunity is very cloudy, but short-term, he can give you a nice boost. Yeah, and uh, two weeks, while it is a, sm- a short amount of time, is like a little bit less than a third, right, or so of the season. That's remaining, so I think that's the way you think about it. You don't just think about it being two weeks, you know, 14-ish games. You think about the fact that he's going to be a guy who contributes to at least one-third of the rest of the season, and when those guys do come back, it's not like Frazier's going to go away. He's not going to play every day, but he's not going to just totally go away, especially if he keeps hitting. So you put all those things together, and I want to bet on him. He's a guy who I do want to bet on because, uh, let's say he keeps hitting pretty well. 
you can't just push him out of the lineup entirely. You can't just get rid of a bat like this, even when you have a plethora of bats that you want to get in the lineup, right? It's a wealth of options, no shortage of options for Aaron Boone once he gets Judge and Stanton back available to him. But I still think that when a guy proves that he is there, that he is doing it, that he is hitting the way that Frazier has, you can't just forget about him. You can't just make him a totally part-time player, if that, totally a pinch-hit sort of guy. So with everything we've seen from him, with the fact that you know you're getting at least two more, two more weeks out of him, I want to make him probably the third most sought-after guy that we've talked about here behind the two obvious ones of Carlson and Bohm. I think I'm putting a higher – unless I have a like severe positional need uh, at catcher, I think I'm putting the third-largest bid on Frazier – uh, of all the guys that we've discussed, are we close to like ten, twelve percent? Like, what's the? I think ten. Rough yeah, estimate? I think I think ten percent's fair. I think that's a good number. And again, like at this stage of the season, you do have to have a little bit of an element of what am I waiting for? And there's always a chance that something's going to happen. But you can only make the decisions with the information that you have available to you right now. And there is a very real chance that Clint Frazier is one of the seven best hitters that we see available on waivers for the rest of the season, maybe even a little bit better than that. I mean, that is a non-zero chance that that ends up being true. So you could hoard this money and wait and wait and then never find anyone who gives you, you know, even one week of what Clint Frazier can do, let alone two. And again, there is no guarantee that uh, Judge and Stanton come back and boom, that's it. Frazier, sorry, you're not going to play anymore. Uh, There's no guarantee that that ends up being the case. And I would actually bet against that being the case. So yes, I would feel comfortable going somewhere in that 10% range to get him on my squad. I guess the other variable here might be Brett Gardner. He's got sure. three homers and two steals so far, but he's 36. He's hitting 178 with a 296 OBP and slugging 422. His form by the time Stanton and Judge come back, if Frazier's still hitting, that could be something that the Yankees look at and say, you know what, Gardner's going to be a backup outfielder for us now. We're going to start playing Clint Frazier more. Uh, we'll play him in left, or we're going to DH him and play one of Judge or Stanton in the outfield that day. I mean, Judge plays right field when he's healthy, but maybe they get comfortable throwing Stanton out there on occasion later on this season. It, it's such a funny thing because the Yankees do a great job building up depth. They have guys that we want to see playing. We've talked about Miguel and Duhar, I think, on this show as a guy who just, frankly, has, doesn't have an opportunity right now, but he's good enough to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a frustrating player to, to have drafted because in so many other situations, he would contribute just as Clint Frazier would. And then I think what happens is you get these injuries, they lean into their depth, we get excited. We get attached to Talkman and Frazier, all these guys, or Shella a year ago. Yep. And we worry, like, oh, what happens when everyone gets healthy? And it does seem to work itself out, sometimes in the form of unanticipated setbacks or other players getting hurt. So who knows? Maybe we'll see something like that that keeps the playing time door open for Frazier beyond these next couple of weeks. Uh, one guy that I talked about on Rates and Barrels with Eno on Thursday is Robbie Grossman. I'm bringing him up here because I wrote him up for the column. He's just playing a lot more than I expected. I'm amazed at what he's been doing with the opportunity, and I'm kind of wondering, aside from the fact that he'll get probably a slight bump in the order with Ramon Laureano serving his suspension, which is only going to be four games, so that'll Mm -hmm. end early in the week. I'm looking at Grossman and wondering if they're doing some of the same things with him that they did with Mark Canna, where he's getting to some more power because of some, some sort of mechanical adjustment. And this is a guy that's always controlled the zone well. So aside from having more playing time than expected, he's showing this early season skills growth in the limited sample. Yeah, I would be very interested to look into that because typically you don't see a 30-year-old who has plenty of major league experience suddenly become a totally new guy in terms of his production the way that we've seen from Robbie Grossman this season. I mean, even including what he has done this year, 283, 441, 566, he's got a career slash line of 254, 353, 377. So you just don't see that at 30 years old. That's just not something that you see regularly. And I would still trust the much larger sample of his career and believe that while this is a great run and he's doing great work and it's a fun story for what this uh, season has been, uh, he's probably going to revert 
to his normal form. Uh, I still would lean on that. I would love to take a look and see uh, if there is some substantive mechanical difference. Because if there is, if we're talking about a substantive mechanical difference, then we can you know, really start to maybe get a little bit excited about what he has done this season, especially given what you said with Mark Canna, that this is a team and a, a regime uh, in Oakland that has a proven ability to be able to tweak guys like that and get a little bit more out of them. So I think you need to look at that. I think it's still uh, he's still a player who is worth a bid this week, but you still do have to trust the large percentage of his career where he has been basically just a guy. And as fun as he has been this season, as good as he has been for Oakland this season, still got to think that he will ultimately revert to that form unless there is some sort of foundational change in the way he is uh, approaching uh, his at-bats this year. Yeah, I'm just digging around trying to find something that sort of supports this extra exit velo we're seeing from Grossman. But the fact that Canha did it last year at least opens mm-hmm. my mind to the possibility that the A's have somebody in Grossman's ear who have helped him make an adjustment that might enable him to unlock that extra power for the the rest of the season. Uh, One guy that was picked up in a lot of 15-team leagues in the last couple of weeks, I kind of missed out on him, is Andres Jimenez. He's been playing all over for the Mets. Uh, Robinson Cano just came back from the IL, so that will crowd things up a little bit. I know Cano's going to probably DH a decent amount, especially since Ioannis Cespedes opted out a couple of weeks ago. But Jimenez has been providing speed, and now he's eligible at three positions. Use him at second, short, and third in NFBC leagues. He's only 21. There's a little bit of like a Luis Garcia, young for the level everywhere, and mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily a finished product yet. But the key difference here is that we saw Andres Jimenez steal 28 bases at AA last season. He was caught 16 times, but he's 6 for 6. Solid hit tool, keeping the K rate down so far, 14.3%. As you kind of look at this Mets team and see some of the moving parts, and Jeff McNeil's a little bit banged up, of course, to that collision with the outfield wall. I think that was Thursday when that happened. Yeah, Are you interested in Andres Jimenez as a source of cheap speed? And if you are, where's the cutoff in terms of league type? I am interested in, in him as a source of cheap speed. Speed is hard to say where to cut it off in terms of in, in league type and league size because the speed is the speed, right? Like it's way different when we're talking about a guy who uh, has some sort of power that we're chasing or some sort of on base ability that we're chasing uh, because those things aren't as singularly valuable as speed is. So I think you can get him all the way down to at least 12 team leagues because the speed's going to play. The speed's going to show up. And so far, he hasn't been hurting you in the ratio categories either. Uh, if you play in an OBP league, you can live with the 320 OBP if he's going to be stealing the way he is. He's hitting 283. So he's more than contributing in that category. And even if you're betting on that coming back, which, you know, frankly, you should be, he doesn't seem like someone who is going to hurt your ratio. Maybe he doesn't help it, but he's probably not going to hurt it. And the 16 caught steals, uh, what was that you said last year? Yeah, last year at the double A level, obviously not ideal. Shows you a little bit of uh, the fact that maybe he just can't get by with speed only. He needs a little bit of base running skill improvement. But the fact that he ran 44 times, that he got caught 15 times and said, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot here again. Just that that willingness <laughs> to run and that the freedom to run that he uh, has had and clearly has carried over uh, to the big league club means that He's probably not going to slow down anytime soon, so you like that. He is going to continue running. Love that he's already been uh, as active on the base pads as he has, stealing six bases, going six for six so far with the Mets. I think he's the guy you can go after, obviously, in 15-teamers, down to 12-teamers, just because that speed's going to be there. Yeah, he's been a burner so far. Again, six steals, and he's in the 95th percentile in terms of sprint speed mm-hmm. as well. So that's going to be the key for his short-term value, especially, I think, long-term. Decent hit tool, a little bit of pop. There's more to unlock, but it's going to take a little time for Jimenez to add those aspects of his game. I think the other kind of deep league speed consideration, this is probably almost more for NL-only leagues, is Magnirus Sierra. He's one of the outfielders in the mix for Miami. Kind of doing some of the things I was hoping Monty Harrison would do. Key difference, though, Monty Harrison has raw power. Uh, Sierra does not. A couple of stolen bases so far, hitting 313 with a 455 OBP. Sierra was a Cardinals prospect that came over in a trade, I think it was two years ago now. And I think he's pretty interesting because he's also been young for the level. He's actually been hurt a couple of times along the way in the minors. So that has slowed down his development. 
if they commit to him as a, a regular because of his defense, because of his ability to impact the game with speed, I think he does become a player that fantasy owners are interested in. I mean, we, we get interested in Gerard Dyson and <laughs> players that don't even hit for average because they can run. And I think right. with Sierra, we're, we're starting to see some signs that you know, there might be a decent hit tool, a good enough hit tool there for him to kind of hold his own in that category and maybe get on base just enough to in a full season in the future, maybe be like a 20 or 25 steal guy as a, a semi-regular for them. Yeah, we have been at least hearing about him for a while, so uh, it's maybe a little surprising to learn that this is a guy who turned 24 uh, back in April. So still plenty young, still plenty of natural growth, both from a physical and a mental level uh, in front of him, and enough hit tool for us, and more importantly, enough hit tool for the Marlins, too. I uh, got to believe that he is someone who is going to get plenty of run in that lineup the rest of the season, uh, no matter how many guys end up uh, being able to come back, no matter how many, no matter when they do come back. Got to believe, just with his youth, with the fact that he could be someone who is part of the next contending Marlins team and what he has shown to this point of the season, that he's going to get himself plenty of playing opportunities. So that is a very good sign. Agree with you for the time being, probably just an NL-only guy, but certainly there's a path here for him to become interesting in 15-team mixers. A couple of Tigers stood out to me this week. Uh, Jamer Candelario, I think, is just slowly getting better. Look, it, it's it's <laughs> glacial improvement, but he's <laughs> his exit velocity has been up each year that he's been in the big leagues, so that's good, right? I mean, better than going the other way or better than just True. staying flat. Uh, he's always controlled the zone pretty well. I think the concern I have is that as he's hit the ball harder, his strikeout rate's been going up, so... If you're making that trade-off, he becomes a bit less interesting. But C.J. Crone had season-ending knee surgery. So I think any concerns about Candelario being pushed by Willie Castro, who we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, those are now gone because these guys can coexist in the lineup together. This is a former Cubs prospect who I think at one point looked like he was going to be a 20% strikeout rate guy with a double-digit walk rate and like 20 home run pop. It hasn't happened yet. Still just 26 years old. And... Opportunity is everything in this short season. What's your interest level in Candelario in leagues where he's available? I got to be honest, it's not very high. I just don't think he has enough category juice, and the, I just don't believe that the ratios are going to be there. I think there's a lot of ratio risk with him. I mean, we're even getting a little bit excited about the uh, the extra base ability that he has shown this season, but we're still talking about a guy hitting 241 with a 293 OBP. So I just can't really get behind him. We've seen him now. He had you know one full, full season with Detroit in 2018, 619 plate appearances. He hit 224, 317, 393 that year. Last year, 386 plate appearances, 203, 306, 337. I just don't really buy it. I don't really buy any sort of short-term uh, improvements that we've seen from him. It's not an environment that's going to lead to a lot of run scoring or RBI opportunities in Detroit. There's just not enough for me to get excited about to really recommend him with any sort of uh, any sort of aggressive endorsement. And I do grant that he might end up having a better season than some of the guys that we've talked about. Like if he could have, he could easily have a more productive season than Magnary Sierra. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But there's something about Sierra to get excited about. There's clearly some sort of growth on the horizon that is bettable. With Candelario, I just think he is who he is, and who he is is not someone that needs to really be uh, all that attractive in fantasy leagues. He started the season, he went 0 for 17 in the first five games in July, but he actually has bounced back in August. He's now 13 for, well, 39 plate appearances, 13 for 39, one homer. Five RBIs, eight runs, not a lot there, but a 91.2 mile per hour average exit velocity so far in August. And add it all up, talking about a guy hitting 351, 385, 649 this month, a 175 WRC plus. We're talking about 11 games, so it's still it's still small, but the playing time has opened up quite a bit. I'm almost more interested in Castro though, which is weird. Mm-hmm. And I feel I feel like this is the this is the fundamental flaw I have in my analysis is that. <laughs> I get so excited for the shiny new toys, as they're often called, that I'll just go right past the player who has a better spot in the order, has already had to deal with failing several times at the big league level. But I like Willie Castro as a switch-hitting middle infielder who's playing third base right now. I think he homered in his season debut, 
Played pretty well at AAA last year, Beller. 11 homers, 17 steals, and just 21 attempts. He was efficient there. Kept the K rate down at 21%. Walked a little bit as well. I think he has upward mobility to the point where he could end up being a leadoff hitter. I described him back in a column, I think in February or March, as a guy capable of being this year's Kevin Newman, as in he pops up on a team that isn't very good, takes advantage of an opportunity, and just does a little bit of everything for fantasy owners. I think there's some ways it could go wrong since Newman strikes out less than Castro, but now he's going to play a ton because of the Crone injury. He's the guy that actually picked up the most playing time, and he's eligible at both shortstop and third base. You start to think about Willie Castro. You compare him even to you know, a shortstop we talked about earlier, like Luis Garcia in Washington. Garcia's probably going to cost more in fab. Willie Castro, to me, is actually a better fantasy player today, and he's going to hit in a more prominent spot, even though it's in a weaker lineup. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And going back to the very first thing you said about uh, this attraction to a shiny new toy being a fatal flaw, I think that can be a fatal flaw if you're passing on a known, boring producer. But you're not doing that in this situation with Willie Castro. You're passing on a guy in Jimer Candelario who uh, is who he is. And this Willie Castro uh, addition could be something that's really exciting in the fantasy world for all the reasons that you said. And I agree. I think he's one of the guys who uh, should be uh, thought of pretty highly uh, in this group of guys that we've discussed because the playing time is going to be there. The minor league track record suggests that good things could happen for him this season. The glove plays at multiple spots. So even if the hitting isn't there uh, for a time, you got to believe that he's going to keep finding his name in the lineup because of the fact that he does play pretty good defense at multiple spots. Everything lines up for him to be someone who plays mostly every day for Detroit the rest of the season. He, too, is someone who I want to bet on as well. There's something about him. There's an excitement about him that makes him a guy who I would go after, certainly uh, in 15-team mixers and maybe even something a little bit deeper, knowing that he's not at that level just yet, but betting that he can become someone who does reach that level. Yeah, I'm cutting him off at 15s for now. I think that's where you're interested, but keeping an eye on him in 12s because if he does mm-hmm. jump up atop the lineup, that's probably enough to nudge him into those leagues as well. It shouldn't take a big bid to get Willie Castro. It won't take a big bid to get Candelario if you're looking for some help on the corner in a deeper league, but I would still keep him in the 15-team bucket as well. And Again, be ready to move him if it doesn't work out. He's probably just a temporary solution if you're dealing with a lot of injury issues at the present time. Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving with their Lawnmower 3.0 personal trimmer. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. And the Lawnmower 3.0 is a waterproof cordless body trimmer that makes it safe and easy. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC20. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts, a travel bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code THEATHLETIC20. All right, Bella, let's talk about starting pitchers. A lot of potential streamers this week, and really not a lot of guys that I saw as long-term ads, but pitching kind of works that way sometimes. You stream a guy, a couple good matchups come up, you keep streaming, maybe the fastball velocity goes up, or you see a new secondary pitch, or the command score goes up, and you kind of build up that trust. And Sometimes it's by design, sometimes it's a total accident. Sometimes you end up just having to use players because you lost a few more pitchers. Uh, of all the guys that were brought up this week, or at least guys that took new opportunities in the rotation, I think Tony Gonsolin's the guy I like the most. But the problem here is that Tony Gonsolin may not be long for the rotation. If the Dodgers mm-hmm. keep starting him, they're effectively using a six-man rotation. And I think that's something that they'll dabble in, but it's not necessarily something they're going to do consistently for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's probably true. But I still think he's someone, like of all these guys that we have listed here who we're going to talk about, he's the one who I would think has long-term value. Like I think all these guys, you hit it right on the head, are guys who are interesting for this week, are interesting maybe for two weeks, and maybe they prove us wrong and they can stick around. But most likely, we're going to be talking about streamers. I do think that Gonsolin 
even if he ends up, you know, bouncing back and forth rotation bullpen or uh, whatever ends up happening with him being he's a multi-inning guy out of the bullpen, he's still going to have some sort of value, I think, for the rest of the season. So he's the one who I would be interested in as a guy who could potentially be sticking on my team beyond a week or two. Everyone else fits into that streamer category. Yeah, Cal Quantrill definitely uh, in that exact same bucket. Uh, Quantrill, I-, I think he's just keeping a seat warm for Mackenzie Gore. I hope so. <laughs> no offense, Cal. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean it's look, it's not personal. It's just we yeah. all we all want to see Mackenzie Gore. It's not uh-huh. not Cal Quantrill's fault. Uh, we saw him start on Saturday. That was on the road against Arizona. He only went three and two thirds innings. He hasn't gone. Uh, into the fifth inning in any outing yet. It's mostly been long relief, of course, prior to this mm-hmm. move to the rotation. You know, 5K is one walk, just one earned run allowed, scattered five hits. So all in all, pretty good performance. I do think he's one of these guys where if you look back at last year, you see that 516 ERA. That's not who he is. Like he's probably more of a, a low to mid fours ERA, kind of a league average whip sort of pitcher with room to get better. We're talking about a guy who was an early first round pick uh, out of Stanford back in 2016. I think there's one more level here. I just don't know if he's going to have an opportunity in the rotation long enough to really deliver on that here in 2020. I think that might be a 2021 opportunity that Quantrill receives, even though he's getting this chance right now. So basically, I'm looking at him as a min-bid or near-min-bid sort of player. I think my reservations with Quantrills are really all riding on Mackenzie Gore coming up. I don't know how much longer we can wait on Gore beyond this week because if it doesn't happen this week, are they just waiting until next season? Uh, you look at the matchup for Quantrill this week, it's not actually that bad. It's home against the Rangers, which you know, anybody in Petco who's decent is worth starting, and Quantrill might be a little more than decent. But I worry if they want to bring up Gore, we might not see Quantrill really get a true opportunity to start until 2021. The other problem is the Padres have an off day on August 24th. So if you're kind of looking at the schedule beyond this streaming opportunity against the Rangers, if they use that off day to reset their order and they use him like a true fifth starter, his next start would come at Colorado at the end of August. And you're not going to want to use him there. So it's really kind of a a one and done for this week in pretty much Mm -hmm. all mixed leagues if you do pick up Cal Quantrill. That's true. That's totally true. It does feel like a one-and-done, or at least, at least there's a chance of it being a one-and-done. But given the fact that it's a pretty decent matchup against Texas this week, I'm comfortable at least throwing a min-bid on him and getting him for that stream opportunity this week. With Mackenzie Gore, I think we're going to see him too. And I think a large part of it is, like regardless of what happens this year, the Padres are coming. And in 2021, I mean, that could be a real breakthrough season for this team. We've seen some signs of it this year. Obviously, the play up and down the team has been a little uneven. But clearly, this is going to be a team we're talking about as a high-level playoff contender for a while. And I would think that this is just a perfect spot to get Mackenzie Gore's feet wet at the very least. I don't think you want to be throwing him in in 2021 in spots where you're really going to be asking him to be a regular starter for you for a team that you expect to contend without having played any sort of competitive real baseball for you know 18 months by time opening day 2021 rolls around. So I do think that you're, we're going to see him because of that fact, even if he wasn't who he is, uh, and that is going to complicate things for Quantrill. But you don't really need to think about it beyond this week for the time being. If you need a streamer, I think he's one of the better ones out there for this week. Yeah, I'm right there with you on Quantrill just as a streamer for this week, but expecting Gore to take over that opportunity. If he doesn't do it this week, I'm probably letting him go and redraft mm. leagues this time uh, next week. And the frustrating thing is that they bring up Gore, thinking about that schedule issue with Quantrill, he'd probably see Coors for his big league <laughs> yeah. debut. So there'd be a reason to believe, well, he's not coming up for that, or at least he's not yeah. going to pitch in that series if he does. So the schedule's key. you got to keep an eye on the schedule as you're looking for streamers and kind of trying to figure out what teams have uh, on their minds. Uh, I want to talk about Alex Young. I think he's somewhat interesting. He's got a reasonably tough matchup this week on the road against Oakland. He's getting a chance to start for the D-backs right now because of Madison Bumgarner's injury. Bumgarner just looks like he's done, Beller. Like mm-hmm. The velocity is way down at this point. I think because he's in the beginning of a multi-year contract, once he's healthy, he probably comes back and, and takes his spot back. So the problem with Alex Young is kind of like the Quantrill problem. There's somebody coming back for that spot. And the thing that's mm-hmm. made Young so effective uh, since getting the first opportunity last season to pitch in Arizona 
he mixes five pitches, like all like 10% of the time or more. Doesn't throw particularly hard. His velocity is up this year. So hitters are just guessing constantly. A little bit of a funky delivery as well. I do like Alex Young. I just have equal confidence in his ability to stick in this rotation as I have to Quantrill's. So yep. kind of the same thing where look at the matchup, maybe a min bid. Are you streaming against Oakland with a guy that is kind of a low 90s fastball, keep everybody off balance sort of pitcher? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, that's the pro- that's the difference here. Like, I feel very comfortable uh, streaming Quantrill against Texas. I wouldn't say the same thing about Young against Oakland. And it's more about the offense. If their if their matchups were switched, I would say, yeah, sure, Bumgarner's coming back, but at least you get a decent start out of Young against Texas this week. And I would be saying, forget about Quantrill against Oakland. It's just not a matchup that I really want to be messing around with for a guy who is almost certainly going to be giving up his rotation spot after it or maybe he gets one more start and then gives up the rotation spot if either one of those variables were different a better matchup this week or Bumgarner's out for six weeks then I think we talk about Alex Young as a min bid sort of guy to chase the fact that it is a tough matchup with Bumgarner coming back makes him a guy who I'm going to pass on this week yeah if we knew he was going to get the two-start week the following week against the Rockies and the Giants at home I'm a big fan of Alex Young in that spot, but sure. to keep an eye on the Bumgarner situation. Uh, the frustrating thing is, if you don't pick him up this week, you might not have a shot at the two-star <laughs> week because someone else right. is going to get him. So <laughs> low bids, if you get him, it's okay, but I think you kind of need to be in a cushy position of maybe having bench room available to stash him away. Uh, Colby Allard is pitching well for the Rangers. He popped up on Eno Saris's uh, commanded stuff report, uh, having shown better stuff to this point in the season. I'm looking at him as a guy that I would stream at Seattle is the matchup for this week. He comes back home against Oakland the following week, so it's probably a one-and-done situation here uh, unless he shows us something else in terms of velocity or secondaries. I I think Allard is going to be an on-again, off-again sort of player. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not necessarily the guy that we thought he'd be when the Braves took him as a first-rounder back in 2015, but useful enough and still only 23 does feel like he's been around for a little while because he was drafted out of high school but uh, mostly just here for the stream yet again yeah here for the stream definitely um with uh, with Allard here and probably my second favorite of the streamers behind Quantrill I think I would go for Quantrill first and then Turn to Allard. Definitely not uh, anything scary about that matchup with Seattle. Just like Quantrill better as a pitcher. Uh, but then again, that's it. So again, this we're talking we're talking a min bid situation. Not someone who's going to be sticking around your roster beyond the stream. But there's a plenty of value in the stream as we have seen time and time again. The other name that's interesting. I don't know how they're going to use him. Is L.J. Newsom? He got called up by the Mariners. Interesting because he doesn't really walk guys at high A last year. Had 124 Ks in 102 thirds innings, pitched pretty well over a nine-start stretch at AA Arkansas. The Ks did come down quite a bit, though. Uh, maybe going to the bullpen for now. It's really unclear what his role is, so he's more of a watch list guy. I think you could throw like a min bid on him in AL-only leagues and just sort of see if he gets a chance in that rotation because uh, the walk rate, again, is really, really good. Maybe there's a little more there than people realize. Not a highly regarded prospect, but opportunity is everything. We're going to discuss a few closers and some drop candidates as well as some Twitter questions in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our friends at Indochino. All right, Beller, let's talk about a few closer situations. It doesn't seem like there's been as much carnage this week as there has been in weeks past. Uh, There is a pretty interesting note here on Kirby Yates. He had an MRI that revealed bone chips in the back of his elbow, so he's going to get a second opinion on Monday I know he's owned pretty much in any competitive league already, but Drew Pomerantz is already getting saves even when Yates Mm -hmm. was healthy because Yates wasn't pitching particularly well. At this point, Drew Pomerantz is a guy that should be rostered in 100% of fantasy leagues, right? I mean, he's been so good since moving into the bullpen with the Giants uh, last summer. Yeah, 100%. Even if they suddenly decide, you know what, Emilio Pagan's our closer. That's what we traded for, to have uh, a lockdown eighth-inning guy who could close in a pinch. If Yates, something happens to Yates, Emilio's our guy. Even if that ends up being the case, which I don't think it will be the case, Drew Pomeranz needs to be owned in 100% of leagues. He's been so good as a reliever. Things have really worked out for him in the bullpen. He has made the most of his move uh, from starter 
two reliever and just really looks like one of the best relievers in the league. So closing, not closing, whatever it might be, he should be owned. And I don't see any reason why he's not going to be the closer in San Diego so long as Yates is out. And this sounds like it could be a serious one for Yates. And Keone Kella back for the Pirates this week. The velocity was good. He gave up a home run in his mm. first appearance of the season, but he's clearly the guy because Nick Birdie is now down for the season with an elbow injury. If both Pomeranz and Kella were available, which might be the case in some 10, maybe a few 12-team leagues out there, Pomeranz is the guy that I want. I think the, question, the question with Kella, though, is if he's out there, how much are you willing to bid? Because this is a Pirates team that's not very good. There's a decent chance that they'll try to trade him later on this season to a contender. You could at least mm-hmm. bolster someone's 6th, 7th, 8th inning situation. The skills are good. It just seems like Keone Kella always has something going on that keeps him from taking the role and just keeping it. Yeah, that's true, but I would still be pretty comfortable uh, going after him with a pretty significant bid. I think uh, if he was sitting out there, I would still be looking at like the 12 or 13% range uh, of, uh, of my fab, my reigning fab to throw on him because the skills are great and he is going to close for Pittsburgh um, as long as he is there, even though we don't expect that team to be winning a ton of games the rest of the season. Got to believe that uh, he's going to get his fair share of save opportunities and there is a risk of him getting traded to a team where he ends up not being the closer, which would obviously take a huge bite out of his fantasy value. But until that's the case, I mean, we we just can't, we can't bet on those things. As obvious as they might seem or as likely as they might seem to us, we can't say that I'm not going to go after Keone Kella because maybe he'll get traded to a team that won't make him the closer. That's just not, I don't think, a winning way of thinking. It's something you have to keep in the back of your mind and maybe instead of going you know, 14% of your fab, you go 12% because of that opportunity, but still someone who I want. You are unlikely to find a closer with his stuff available for the rest of the season. The other situation we should talk about is St. Louis. The Cardinals returned to action on Saturday. They had a doubleheader against the White Sox. I saw Giovanni Gallegos pitched the sixth inning. It was against the heart of the order, though, for Mm -hmm. the White Sox. It was a four-run lead situation Sixth inning, it was high leverage. I mean, it, other than the score being a little lopsided. So I don't think it means that Gallegos is buried in that bullpen or that he's unrosterable. But I do think it's interesting that it was Andrew Miller who actually pitched a scoreless seventh inning in the second game of the doubleheader to record a save. Ryan Helsley was just placed on the COVID IL. I think we knew that was sort of coming. Uh, so what do you do with the available St. Louis relievers. Gallegos, I think, is more heavily rostered than Miller. Are are you chasing Miller in leagues where he's available? I would be comfortable throwing a couple of bucks at both of these guys. I still, if I'm betting on one of them becoming the team's long-term closer, I still think it's Gallegos. Remember, this is this team's first couple of games uh, that they played on Saturday in two and a half weeks. Uh, The fact that they went to Gallegos first, right? He, you know, chronologically, he got to pitch before um, Andrew Miller did, and he did it, like you said, against the heart of the order in the second to last inning of the game, or two seven inning games. So that sixth inning was the second to last inning of the first game of the doubleheader facing that powerful middle of the White Sox lineup. That, to me, is a signal of who Mike Schilt likely prefers in high leverage situations. And so I feel comfortable betting that he is more likely the guy. I just don't think this is going to be a guaranteed uh, situation where one guy is the closer for St. Louis. I think multiple guys are going to get saves for that team, which is why I feel comfortable uh, throwing a few bucks at both Gallegos and Miller. I do lean in Gallegos' direction. Like You probably don't want both. Probably very few people have the roster space to roster two sometime closers from the same team. So I would prefer to have Gallegos to Miller. So I want to ask a question about a reliever who I think kind of transitions nicely into our drop section for today. I started thinking about dropping Will Smith in the leagues where I have him because Mark Melanson continues to get saves. Yeah. Uh, Smith gave up a game-tying home run in the 8th to Monty Harrison on Saturday. Picked up the win, so he kind of backed into that one. I think he's a perfectly fine reliever. I think he's good enough to be rostered in some leagues even when he's not getting saves. But at the same time, you don't always have the luxury of waiting on a pitcher like that. And given the way Melanson's handled the job capably to this point, if you're in a 12-team league and you have other issues to address, are you comfortable cutting Will Smith at this point, seeing how the Braves have handled things through the first three weeks of the season? 
I am, and that's the perfect way to say it. I do think there's still pl- some value in Will Smith. I wouldn't necessarily be looking to cut him, but if I have other things I need to address, I am comfortable with Will Smith being the guy who ends up getting the drop. So then here's the other side of the question. I wrote up Oscar Mercado and Scott Kingery and Sam Hilliard as three players who I actually liked quite a bit coming into the season who I all think are droppable in redraft leagues right now, probably down to at least 15-team mixers. I think if you're in uh, NL-only leagues and AL-only leagues, you're obviously holding on to those guys because any playing time is gold, and they do have interesting skills, even if things are not going well for them to begin the season. If you had, let's say, any one of those guys, and you had Will Smith and you had to drop one, like, are you more content to stash the position player that you liked a few weeks ago who either is slumping or is not playing enough, or are you more interested in holding on to that really good setup guy that hasn't been getting saves? Probably depends on the overall shape of my team in general. I'm going to be more willing to hold on to the position player because of the fact that he's going to play every day, you would hope at least. Um, I will say that I, on I think it was Friday, when his name was not in the lineup yet again, and throw up in my fantasy app, see that red X next to Oscar Mercado, rage drop, just rage dropped him. (laughs) It was. It felt so good. <laughs> I just, why isn't he playing? I, I mean, I know he's not playing well, but he's also not even getting an opportunity to play his way out of his funk after what he did last season. I can't figure it out, so I clearly am comfortable dropping Oscar Mercado. I've done it. In general, though, I would lean toward keeping the position player in the scenario you described. It's so weird because all three of those guys are guys that I would be trading for in a keeper or a dynasty league if I'm yeah, playing sure. for the future. Like I, I think Kingery, maybe he's a little flimsy because he doesn't necessarily have a position to call his own, but Didi Gregorius is there on a one-year deal, right? So if Gregorius leaves as a free agent at the end of the season, Gene Segura moves back over to play shortstop, Kingery's the second baseman again. Like There's a scenario in which Scott Kingery and Alec Bohm can coexist in the same lineup. So I think this is a really good buy-low window Really, on, on all three of those guys, I think with Hilliard, it's just frustrating to see Rymel Tapia playing ahead of him. I know he hasn't done a lot with the limited chances he's had, and they caught a whole bunch of lefties. Like Last week, they faced six lefties in a row, so that doesn't bode well for a guy that's in a platoon either. But the fact that they had a situation, I was telling you before we started recording, the Rockies were down two with nobody out in the ninth inning. They let Tony Walters hit. They had a runner on second base. A home run would have tied the game. Sam Hilliard on the bench against Rafael Montero. David Dahl on the bench against Rafael Montero. <laughs> Good job. Good job, Good job. everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I feel about Sam Hilliard. I'm frustrated <laughs> that he can't even get a pinch hit at bat and in an obvious situation where he could win the game, which I saw him I saw him hit a home run in that situation off Josh freaking Hader last September, and it mattered, and it almost ruined my life. A little <laughs> bit of an exaggeration. Let's take a few listener questions so I calm down. Dustin on Twitter wants to know, why am I looking at Martin Perez with a glimmer in my eye? Man, it's, it's, hard. it's hard to see anything <laughs> good in that Boston rotation right now. Uh, what do you think about Perez? Do you think there's any reason to be optimistic about him as uh, maybe a rare, rare viable option in the Boston rotation? He is pitching pretty well. 338 ERA, 122 whip now through four starts. Yeah, he just doesn't get me excited. It's akin to what we talked about with Robbie Grossman earlier. With a guy who has so much Major League experience, I'm going to trust who he has shown us to be over the balance of his career. And Martin Perez has shown us to be a a guy who's just not really going to factor into the fantasy discussion all that much. Uh, Even though the, the ERA looks decent, the whip looks fine, he's still not striking anyone out. Uh, 16Ks in 21 and one-thirds innings so far this season. I think he's part of the stream discussion when he gets a decent matchup, but that's really it. I couldn't imagine keeping him around my roster for beyond uh, one good matchup here or there. One thing he's done pretty well, kind of going back to last year, once he brought that cutter into the fold, and he's been throwing that even a little more than he did a year ago, he induces a lot of weak contact. Like If you look at the average exit velocity against him, he was in the top 4% of the league last year. He's been in the top 5% of the league so far here in 2020 but you're right he doesn't seem to have a pitch that gets him a lot of whiffs so mm-hmm. inducing weak contact yeah that's a skill not having good put away pitches to pile up strikeouts that's a clear flaw I think that does leave me more in the streaming camp when it comes to Martin Perez it's really been streaming camp 
all day on this show. It's, it has been. I don't know. It's just get the, a it's, sponsor. It's the way the schedule breaks sometimes. <laughs> you just have a bunch of guys who are temporarily useful, and then they're off your roster again. Yeah. But I, I think he's one of those guys that I think partially because he's a lefty pitching in Fenway too. I'm a little bit nervous about him mm-hmm. he, for this week, right? Like, like what what kind of matchup are you comfortable starting Martin Perez in? Like home against the Orioles, maybe? Yeah, like, Baltimore, Miami. It's not a lot. It's not like only like average teams. It's kind of below average teams, like the bottom five, bottom six offenses. That's about it as far as like where I'd actually yeah. use a player with that skill set. And even then, I wouldn't be expecting more than you know like half a strikeout per inning. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Thanks a lot for the question, Dustin. And, and thanks to uh, Spainerd6 on Twitter for the question about Mackenzie Gore. I think we're both in the opinion that he's – it's either now or never. It's either this week or it's just – it's not going to happen. Be. So uh, holding on for one more week. just want to make sure I clarify that we did answer that question. Uh, Eric on Twitter has an interesting question. Would we drop Jesse Winker in case the Reds don't play for a while? The Reds had a positive COVID test on Saturday, so their Saturday and Sunday matchups against the Pirates were postponed. Is there any sort of forward-looking maneuver that you're making with Reds? Because I do think in mixed leagues, Winker's been on fire. We've seen this happen with the Marlins, with the Cardinals, when one or two positive tests turn into an outbreak, we end up missing players for a couple of weeks, and that's a huge deal if, if you're left with a, a tough drop decision on, on a day like today, not knowing what that schedule looks like. It is. It is a, a huge, huge um, hole in your lineup, and it's hard to get your head around. I would say, though, that in general, I'm not making any rash moves with my Reds, especially with my Reds position players, because we've seen from the Marlins, who were able to get back on the field after a week, uh, that they have gotten back to playing and that the MLB is doing a, as good a job as it can in getting their games rescheduled. And then you go to the Cardinals, who had just about as extreme of a situation as you could have without canceling a team season. And what do you see? Three of their first six days back in the field, they're playing double headers. So MLB is going to want to get these teams playing time and I understand that you know, if it's a situation for the Reds where they end up having to play three doubleheaders in six games that it's not like Jesse Winker is going to play every single one of those games but I would bet on on balance he's going to get his plate appearances that he would have gotten uh, had these games not been postponed so with the way he's hitting and with the way a lot of these guys in the Reds uh, either are hitting or that we expect them to hit I'm not making any rash moves. I'm still going to hold on to them unless something very extreme happens over the next couple of days. Yeah, and maybe we'll get more information between now and 10 o'clock Eastern tonight when a lot of leagues right, right. have to set up their drops. So for now, holding off on dropping Winker, if I had some kind of nightmare scenario with a bunch of injuries, my roster was totally locked, maybe you could justify it at 12, but I really don't want to do that. Uh, there's a second part of the question for Eric. He's in a league where there are several good pitchers available He's got his choice of Spencer Howard, Nate Pearson, Matthew Boyd, who's really been struggling, Freddie Peralta, and Kevin Gaussman, who frankly looks like he might be one of the best available starting pitchers at the trade deadline in the near future. I mean, you talk about a guy that's on a one-year deal, rebuilding Giants team, striking a lot of guys out, has everything kind of working right now. Uh, so to me, there's, there's some streaming potential with this group since... I like a lot of these guys, but if you had to kind of pick one for the rest of the season, who do you go with? I think if I'm going for just proven production, I'm going with Gaussman. I still want to bet on Nate Pearson, even though the early returns in his first three starts haven't been uh, so hot with the the five ERA and the one and a half whip. Obviously, that's not exactly what you're jonesing for, but I still would like to bet on him. I would like to bet on him getting things right um, and that ever all that upside coming together uh, in a big way. He does have 11 strikeouts in his 12 and a third inning, so at least you can count on that coming from him. But if I just need good, solid, steady production, as boring as it is, Gaussman would be the guy who I would lean toward. Yeah, it's interesting that Boyd's not the guy, but he's basically leaning on two pitches and yeah, can't trust him. doesn't have it right now. Does have a two-start week coming up. Both starts on the road. He's got the White Sox and he's got Cleveland. Yeesh, uh, no thanks. Home the following week, he gets Minnesota. So the schedule's not great for Matthew Boyd either in terms of bouncing back. I mean, mm-hmm. he's capable of being fine in those matchups when he's right, but I don't feel good about playing him in those spots. And I think I'm with you on Gaussman. I think part of the problem with Freddie Peralta usage innings-wise is a little bit lighter. It maximizes effectiveness, and he looks really good. I just don't know if he's going to get a chance to work 
as a straight-up starter in the near future with Pearson and Howard. We've talked about them a lot on this show. Uh, plenty to like with both. I think the the Pearson schedule, is, he's got a two-start week at Baltimore, at Tampa Bay. So that's pretty interesting for this week. I know Tampa Bay is not an offense you necessarily think of streaming against, but then you got Spencer Howard, one start on the road against the Jays. That'll be in Buffalo, of course. So playable there. I think there is a bit of a lag, though. I think Gossman, is, because he's at home a lot, where you just trust almost anybody, mm-hmm. that's what separates him. And I think the possibility of ending up on a good team for these next couple of starts, that also makes him appealing. So I'm with you. I think we agree on this one. Uh, and I'm going to keep a very close eye on the situation beyond this week if I'm in Eric's shoes because that's a really nice group of pitchers who you, know, you could mix and match quite a bit off of the waiver wire. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Thanks for all the great questions. You can find Beller on Twitter at mbeller. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Be sure to check out the ads and drops column up on the site. If you don't already have a subscription, you can get one at 40% off at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you Wednesday with Under the Radar. 